I invite you to take out your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read the entire chapter this morning. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus, making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are dwelling, built, are being, are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Well, this morning we continue our study in the book of Jude. We are taking a very, very deliberate study of the concepts and principles that he has introduced in what would normally just be breezed over as an introduction. And by doing so, we rob the text, I think, of a lot of power when we simply say, well, these are just standard statements that men, Christian leaders made to their recipients. And so to prevent that from happening, we've been taking our time 
to do word studies on each of these, and I've been taking a pretty strong pattern of uh, a week telling you about God and his initiation of these, and then a week talking about your responsibility with regard to them. And so we come to the second word of verse 2, and again we have a word and a principle that is often misused, much like mercy. And we often ignore the fact that we have responsibility within this. We usually just simply relegate this to, well, God has to give this to me. It's his promise. And we mean by peace something a little less substantial than what the Bible means by peace. For we usually come to the word peace and think of peace of mind. We think of it in terms of tranquility or serenity. We think of it in terms of our feelings and oppose it with the antonym anxiety. And there is a facet of that within the context of biblical idea of peace, but it is not the primary facet of peace in Scripture. And so when God says, I bring you peace, and we describe Jesus as the Prince of Peace, it is not that which will deliver you from all concerns or cares, but rather it is that which sustains us in the midst of what is to come, which is certainly troublesome. And yet we are unmoved because of his peace. The antonym in scriptures we're going to see is very different. It is not anxiety versus peace. Anxiety and worry are usually counterpositioned with the concept of contentment in scripture. Be content. Why are you worrying about what you should wear, what you should eat? For God says he'll take care of you. And again, we do not eliminate the idea of peace out of that, but rather that is the priority, is of contentment. When we come to the idea that peace be multiplied to you, there is a different antonym that most of us do not associate with it in terms of spiritual peace, which is unfortunate. We want to study that out this morning so we understand a biblical concept of what is it that God is providing for you versus what too many in the Christian community try to say um, peace is. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for the opportunity to study, to engage your scriptures, to consider its truth, bring it into our minds first, into our hearts, and into our lives. Lord, we can do none of these three without your help. So first, Lord, this morning we pray that you might help us to engage our thoughts, that they might be your thoughts. That what we acknowledge as truth might be truly your truth from your word and not our own ideas and concepts. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you might also now open our hearts, that we might be responsive and not stubborn when we discern your truth, that we might recognize the need to love it, to embrace it, to conform ourselves to it. Not as though it is a burden, but as a joy. And again, Lord, we pray your spirit to do so, to soften our hearts to your truth. We pray also that you might guard this time, as always, from error. And that you might work by your mercy and grace in our lives to your pleasure. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So Jude wants his readers to have peace multiplied to them. So we're going back up and find out the origin of peace. Of course, it's going to be from God, but we are going to look at two different phrases these two weeks. One is the peace of God and the peace with God. And we want to begin there. And of course, we've already read out of Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. That will be our main text that we're going to go to. But we want to examine um, the biblical concept of what it means to be to have peace that God offers. And we're going to find that uh, there's at least one or two occasions that Jesus himself in Matthew says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. We don't like that concept, um, but yet in the earthly realm, when we use the word peace to refer to your experiences here on earth, um, that declaration by Jesus is probably more accurate than your ideas of the peace that God should give you. Because Christ says, I'm not coming here to bring you peace, but a sword. You're going to have all kinds of problems once you trust in me, because if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They're going to be opposed to you. You're going to encounter tribulations, trials of, from all kinds of places, sources. And so we have trans the a concept of peacefulness, of, of, like I said, tranquility and serenity into this concept that we are supposed to possess that here. Um, but Christ has been very careful to say that's not going to be your experience in your earthly realm. So the peace he's talking about is not peace with your neighbors. It's not peace with your society. It's not at peace with your circumstances. It's not going to be at peace with your anyone. But the philosophies of this world, you should never have peace with them. It should be constant turmoil. So what is this peace if it's not of this world? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, and then we'll do use that and jump off from there into some other passages so that we have a good full understanding of what it is that God is declaring to us. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 2, we are probably well familiar with several verses in there, especially verses 2, 8, and 9, um, as well as earlier. But we come down to verse 14, and it says, For he himself, that is Jesus Christ, is our peace. That he is, by definition, our peace. And what Paul means by this is not peace in terms of tranquility, in, in terms of your sense of safety or 
uh, that you have enough or that you feel content. That's usually what we think of as peace. Um, you know, soft music in a, in a flowery meadow with birds flying around and the sun is shining and everything is wonderful in the world. That is not the biblical concept. What it is, is the difference between peace and war. And the word you'll find in scripture to describe that is enmity. Paul here in verse 13 has described that you were far off. He has elsewhere described earlier in the chapter that you were in living in the lusts of your flesh. You were the ones who were the enemies of God. You were once these who were on the wrath side of God. You were at enmity with God. You were at an adversarial relationship with your creator. And Christ comes in, he takes you who are far off, who were the enemies of God, who were at war with God, and God was at war with you. Let me make that very clear. It is God's wrath. Christ comes in, he says, you who are far off, he is brought near. He becomes the ambassador from the heavenly realm to come into our realm and to seek to make peace with those who are at war. This is what Christ has done. So when it says Christ is our peace, is isn't, oh, you know, I, I, feel, I feel at peace. Well, that's not really what we're talking about at all. It's fine that you feel at peace every now and then. It's interesting how that goes with your hormones and what you've eaten lately and how your sleep patterns are, how that affects your peacefulness of feeling. But that's nothing compared to what Christ is offering here. He is offering to end the war between men and God. That's what he comes to do. To take those who are far off, who were distant, who deserved to be the enemies of God, and bring them near to God. In fact, not just into a tense uh, peace. You know, we have peace talks today for the Middle East and other things. And, and uh, you know, it's always tense and how long will it last? That is not what he's saying here at all. I am bringing you near into, and by the word near, he means into the very family of God. This is an enduring peace. This is about a relationship. And you're going to see not only the word enmity as the opposite of peace in several of these passages, but you're also going to see a very important theological word associated with your peace. And that is the word reconciliation. Now there's a good theological word and we have some attachment to know what it means to be reconciled. That is that uh, we who are once estranged uh, in a relationship, have been brought back together, and there's hugs, kisses, weeping on each other's shoulders, and say, "How? Why were we so dumb and so foolish to have broken this relationship? And now let's restore this relationship and have it flourish." And this is the word reconciliation. And this is what Jesus Christ has come. He is our reconciliation. And so we find here in verse 16 of Ephesians 2 that he might reconcile them both to God. 
So he has come not just to reconcile Israel. Israel broke her relationship with God uh, through disobedience by going after those things that are not God and uh, those idols of the world and such and broke their relationship with God. And God still loved them and wanted peace between he and they. And Christ came as their Prince of Peace, their Messiah. But it wasn't just for Israel. He also said, well, it's not, the price I'm paying, that's not a big enough group. <laughs> God's love was greater than that. And so he says, it's also going to bring peace to the Gentiles and bring you into one body to reconcile you both to God. And I want you to understand that, that while there was contention between the Judaizers and there are several books of the Bible dealing with that. You've got to become a Jew to become a Christian. No, um, there was conflict between Judaizers and the Gentiles, Paul especially, um, over what is required to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, but what Paul is communicating here very clearly to the Ephesian Christians is that, listen, you are all one in Christ. And if you've all been reconciled to God equally, then there shouldn't be any separation between you. There shouldn't be a, a Jewish seating area of your church. There shouldn't be a, a, a Jewish Christian church over here and a Gentile church over here. There shouldn't be Greek speakers there, Hebrew speakers there, and Latin speakers over there. There should not be a segregated church. There should be no walls. Why? Because there is no wall between you and God now. You've been reconciled to God. You are at peace with God. How can you have anything but peace toward each other within the Christian community? And we're not talking about the world, because remember, the world is still at enmity with God, and therefore they will be at enmity with us because we are reconciled to God and they are not. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but within the Christian community, Paul says, listen, there should be a complete unity because we've all been reconciled to God. That wall has been broken down, and so therefore any walls, a barrier between individuals of men should, is dissolved. It's gone. The only way it exists is if you build it. And unfortunately, in Christian history, we have been pretty adept at rebuilding these ridiculous walls of separation and classifying Christians. It was once said when I was young that the most segregated time in this country was Sunday morning. And it was largely true. Segregated not by force, but by choice. Not by God, but by men. We find this expectation that if we have peace, we have to understand there is no enmity. There is no opposition between us and God. And this is what it means when it says, he is our peace. He has brought us near by his own blood into an intimate, familial relationship with the God of all the universe. You are at peace with God. The one who is holy, holy, holy. Now the ramifications of that 
yes, are that he will take care of you, that uh, you, all these other facets that we usually associate with peace, but we don't focus enough energy and time and thought on this facet that I am on God's side and God is on mine. You are not in an adversarial relationship with God anymore. That's what it means to have peace. And shame on the Christian who points a finger at God and says, how could you let such and such or this thing happen to me? You have just placed yourself in an adversarial attitude towards the God who has made peace with you. He has made a covenant of peace, a pact. That there shall be no adversity between you and he. There will be no opposition. That he is your ally 100%. Faithful ally. How can you come to him with such an accusation? How offensive is that? That you seek to introduce an adversarial aspect to God's person and work on your behalf. And that's why in Ephesians 2, we have seen extensively, look at great, the grace of God. Look what he's done for you. Look what he's done for you. Look what he's done for you. And that's why the Christian life can only be lived if we are full of thanksgiving. Otherwise, we will start pointing our finger to God. We'll still start setting up this adversarial role. And by the way, here's another form of how you set up an adversarial role towards God. When you start making deals with God in your prayer life, you are setting up an adversarial relationship with him. You're assuming that he doesn't want to bless you. That he has to be dealed. You have to make a deal with him to bless you. How offensive is that to someone who has sent his son to shed his blood to bring you into his family? That you think he doesn't want to bless you. And you start praying these deal prayers. You know, Lord, if you'll take care of me now, I won't miss church for the next three months, whatever. You know, as soon as you do that, you are declaring yourself at enmity with God. You're not coming to God as someone who is already desires to do you good. Can you imagine your children coming up to you and saying that? How would you feel? Hey, Dad, you know, um, can we make a deal here that you'll feed me for the next three weeks if, um, if I rub your feet? Well, I'm going to feed you for the next three weeks whether you rub my feet or not. Because I'm your father. You don't have to make a deal with me. And so much of the peace that we should have, acknowledging that we have no enmity, there's no wall, there's no separation between us and God, that we are not far away and that out of his mind uh, and, and off his thinking and, and beyond his radar, but rather that we are intimately in his family and he is for us. And we ought to be for him. And it needs to be played out in our lives. He has come to bring peace. This is the work of God. And when Jude says, let's multiply, I want that peace multiplied to you. What is he really saying? He's saying, oh, that you would come into a greater and greater intimacy with Christ, with God. 
For there is what peace really means. Not just the absence of war, but full reconciliation. That we're going to have this relationship be a priority in our lives, for it is the best. Let's go over to Romans 5 and see another place that Paul talks about this to another group of people. Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He made peace with us. Not because you were worthy or interested, but because he. For in verse 8 it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Through him, and that word wrath is connected to that word enmity. We are saved from having him as our enemy. We are saved from his wrath through Christ. For if we were sinners, for if when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God. There's that word reconciled again. Chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace. Well, when did it happen? When you were reconciled down here for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a focus point of our peace. We've been reconciled to God. But the evidence here in Romans 5 is that you should see reconciliation not just as a single event in your life, but a continuous, growing, expanding, developing aspect of your life. That is that you are coming into greater and greater intimacy with God. And if that is not your experience, we're going to talk about that next week, you got some things to work on because it's not God's fault. He has not just made you citizens of his kingdom, you know, like, you know, a slave or a servant or, or a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker that's somewhere low. He has brought you into the very court of God, very, in the very family of royalty in his kingdom, into his very family. This is where the reconciliation of God takes us. But our experience has to be developed in that regard. Remember, as we talked about that second word of being sanctified in verse 1 of Jude, we now come to the idea that there's a, there's a progression here. So we were, in verse 10, we were once enemies, we're reconciled to God. That happened by the shedding of his blood. So now, instead of being God's enemies, we are his children. 
we are saved. We receive deliverance. And by the way, the deliverance has to come after the reconciliation. We accept the work of Christ as our own. For me, he died. We are no longer enemies with God, but his friends, his family, his children. And the very first thing he does as a demonstration of the power of that reconciled relationship is he saves us from our sin. We shall be saved. He goes on and says, but is that the end? No. Verse 11, not only (laughs) do you have a right relationship with God, not only are you saved by his life, but you have more. It says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's something more to just having a relationship with God to be saved. If that's all you needed from God and want from God, um, you might be reconciled to God, but I don't think that God's reconciled to you. You haven't made him your family. God may have made you his child, but I'm not sure that you've made him your father. There's a continuing aspect of this reconciliation that goes beyond the single event of your salvation, and it extends. And so from Paul's perspective, it says, you should be rejoicing that you have continued to receive the reconciliation. This goes back to Jude's idea that peace should be multiplied. You should be growing in that relationship. If I want to develop intimacy and I want to maintain a peace relationship with a person, I don't just you know, write it down on one paper, set it down, put a little stamp on it, and uh, we each have a copy, and then we go our separate ways. That's not how you maintain a peace relationship. Would you agree with that? Did it work for your wedding? That's what you did at your wedding. You wrote a piece of paper, you know, you signed it, uh, uh, this person I got married to, and this person you had. Some witnesses even signed it. I probably, I might have been one of the ones signing it on your real marriage license, and you made vows in front of people. If that was it, and then you just kind of went your own ways, what kind of intimacy would you have? You'd say, well, we're reconciled. We're, we're, we're family. We're one. But that was the last time you had any level of engagement. Of course, your marriage isn't going to survive. What makes you think your relationship with God will survive if that's the only thing you have of evidence that you are reconciled to God? Paul says, you're reconciled to God, you are saved, and now you continue to receive reconciliation. You persist in this. God keeps bringing you back and bringing you back. We hear the old Testimonies of those that uh, are backslidden and God brings them back. The prodigal son. um, That God is always looking to receive you back. He did that with Israel over and over and over again. This reconciliation. So peace is about no longer being his enemies, but being within his family. 
that we are no longer opposed to God and God is no longer in opposition to us. And in that condition, then we can start to claim the promises of God. Then we can start to, to move and function and, uh, and to uh, truly be thankful and live as God would have us live. We find that within the context of all of this that we have peace with God, that we also have the Holy Spirit given to us. That intimacy that God says, it's okay. I don't want you to lose that intimacy, so what am I going to do? Well, when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. Why? To be your comforter? To, be, to maintain the intimacy? To maintain the peace between you and God? I'm going to send him to sustain that. You see, God keeps bringing peace and keeps bringing peace and keeps bringing peace. And this is our ministry of reconciliation, to bring people to come to a place that they can be at peace with God. Perhaps the best example in the Old Testament of this is a very familiar story to you, and that is of Jonah. Jonah was sent to be an emissary of peace because God was at enmity. There was an enmity between him and the Ninevites. Their sin had grown so great that he was prepared to do what he had done to Sodom and Gomorrah, but they didn't have a man like Lot living in their town. I say, why did he give Nineveh a chance and not Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah had a chance. They had righteous lots sitting in their gate every day. And they didn't heed him. They had a testimony. And so God was destroyed them. They were at enemy. They didn't respond. But Nineveh didn't have a lot in the gate. They didn't have the access. And God says, well, Jonah, I want you to head over there. And Jonah's like, no, you should just destroy them because they're our enemies. And frankly, that's how most of us feel towards many of our enemies. Well, God wants you to destroy them, get them out of the way. If we're honest, we're more like Jonah than Jesus when it comes to reconciliation between us and the enemies of God, our enemies. Jonah runs, hides, of course. Then he finally, you have the whole great fish swallowing him three days there, gets spits up on the thing. He finally surrenders himself to the, God's plan. Although he still has some reservations about all that we're going to see later on, but he goes and he preaches, and something marvelous happens. Here are people who are at enmity with God. God is prepared to completely annihilate them. And they do what to Jonah was the unthinkable. They respond with repentance. And suddenly those who were at odds with God are now at peace with God. God says, I accept you. Which was not acceptable to Jonah, but is acceptable to God. God accepted the Ninevites. And of course, God still had some work to do in Jonah's life to teach him a little bit. But here are people who were at enmity became at peace. That there was no war. 
And brethren, I want you to understand that in your relationship with Jesus Christ, as ones who have trusted in him, there is no issue of enmity between you and God, but that what you create in your mind, for it is not in God's mind. He has a mind to do you good, to bless you. He is at peace with you. And it's for us to walk in that peace that we have, through Christ Jesus, access to his grace, Romans 5.2. We have access to him. That's peace. We were far off. We were his enemies. But now, we're at peace with him. We're not at war. God isn't a begrudging father, but a benevolent one who wants to bless you. Above all that you ask or think is the promise. That's how much God is prepared to bless you. That's the kind of peace we live under through Jesus Christ. There is nothing between you and God. The blood of Christ has resolved it all. It is now incumbent upon us, as we'll see next week, for us to be engaged in that peace and to maintain and to sustain it. But it is all accomplished through Jesus Christ. He is our peace. And so we have it continuing on in our lives. in the flesh and the work of Jesus Christ. We have access to God. And that is the exact same thing, that access that he talked about in Ephesians. It says because of his work of bringing us into peace, we have access to the Father through the Spirit. We have access by one Spirit to the Father, it says in verse 18. Which brings us to the last four verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians is where I'm at now. How is peace multiplied? God multiplies it by building on their relationship. Paul in the book of Ephesians uses this example of a building. You have a foundation. It's built on foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ becomes the chief cornerstone. He says in verse 20, and so we are a building now. All of us who are no longer at enmity with God, but now are reconciled to him, are in the same building. We are all structurally connected in Christ Jesus, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I want you to see how one word here in verse 21, and that is it grows. It grows into a holy temple before the Lord. That as we develop this reconciliation relationship with God, that we come into greater and greater intimacy, that there is a strengthening and a growth of 
our relationship to God till we are complete in him. And remember, that was the preserved facet that we talked about in Jude verse 1. We are preserved that we might be a holy temple. All of us. The we is, is the church. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. An ongoing activity of God. He is an active agent seeking to bring his children, his building materials, um, from being just random boards and bricks laying around into a structure. He is actively an agent in trying to build us as a unit, as a temple. Yes, we individually carry the temple, that we are individually described in Corinthians as the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. You're bought the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But in addition to that, there is yet another temple being described, and that is that we, you all, are being built together. That, and this goes back to where Ephesians is going to talk about it here in a, in a little bit. That's why Ephesians 4 talks about he gave you pastors, elders, he gave you teachers, so you could all grow in unity of the faith and the knowledge of, your, of his son. That you might have a oneness. But the foundation of that oneness is that you have all have peace with God. And you should be increasing in that, multiplying in that intimacy, that there is less and less adversity between you and God because you are walking in pace, in step with the Holy Spirit. One of the evidences of that is when we are beginning to knit ourselves together with the family of God. And this was a great concern to Paul for his churches. And so it's a great concern for every pastor for our churches. We should be knitting each other together tighter and tighter into the family of God. To recognize that this is God's work on our behalf, to knit us together. So how does he do it? Well, um, in chapter 4, verse 10, 11, 12, 13, he talks about how, I'm gonna, how does he do that? He gives gifts, and you're supposed to exercise those gifts, not for your own interest, but for the benefit of the body. So that we can be knitted together more and more. Not segregated, not an us and them within the church. There never should be an us and them in the church. Except maybe at the very initiation of a church. Where we haven't had the time to knit ourselves together. But at this point there should be, in the life of a, you're in life of a mature Christian, uh, an understanding that we need to, we're at peace with God. And part of that peace is an intimacy that we share not only with God to increase it more and more, but with each other to increase it more and more. God wants us to be knitted together. And too often, within the Western thought anyway, of our Christian life, we operate more like a whole bunch of building materials laying out on a field um, rather than a building nailed together, mortared together, screwed together, tight. Now, I've been doing some construction here the last few months, so I have to take this illustration a little bit farther, don't I? When all the building materials are laying out there, just laying on the ground out there, something 
horrible happens. They deteriorate very quickly. You have to cover them. You have to be exposed to rain and all the wood starts to warp, bugs, all kinds of problems. So as soon as they get there, we try to start putting them up and knitting them together where their place is within the building plans. Where does this board go? Where does that uh, piece of plywood go? Where does this go? And then soon we start to find that we have a shelter. Now we finally got a roof out there, and we're like, oh, what a relief. But you know what? Even the exterior materials that are designed to be weathered upon, like metal roof, while it's on the floor, it's susceptible. You know what it's susceptible to? Getting stepped on, which ruins it. It's not the place for it. Being carried around, it gets bent, and it's not acceptable material anymore. It's safest place for the windows when they get delivered is in the places that they belong. What happens if the windows aren't in the rough-in openings for them on the building? You know what they're susceptible to? Being broken. They're much more likely to be broken, bent, ruined if they're not where they belong on the building. If they're just laying around in an open field. Christians... You are not designed to be individual agents laying around in the open field of God's kingdom. God's design for each one of you, though you are different, is to knit you together. You're not all windows. You're not all boards. You're not all plywood. You're not all drywall. You're not all nails or screws. You're all different. God says, I want you knitted together, for there you are safe. There, there is strength. There is peace. There you will find your peace multiplying. And that's why Jude is, again, written to a body of Christians. Ephesians is written to a group of Christians, to a church. Romans is written to a church. Knit yourselves together. God wants it that way. He designed you that way. He designed the Christian life that way that you knit yourself into a church. And those that want to say the church is a passe, needs to be gotten rid of, are ignorant of God's design. If you want peace with God, the ramification, the result of peace with God, once it's accomplished, you're reconciled with God, it says... You are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You're being fitted together, it says in verse 21. You're growing into a holy temple. It isn't stagnant. If your Christian walk is a static thing, that's a piece of paper that says you were baptized such and such a time place, um, then you have not really been reconciled to God. And don't you go into the kingdom of God thinking that you can be a piece of building material sitting out on your own, out in a field, and survive. You will deteriorate. God says, knit yourself together. I want, God is actively doing that. 
He doesn't want Jews over here and Gentiles. He wants them to be one. He doesn't want there to be classes within the church. He wants there to be a, a singular relationship because we are one in him. He doesn't worry about slave and free, female, male. That stuff is no longer at issue. Isn't it amazing how it's such a big issue in our world today? In these last days, God says, knit yourself together into a building. There's strength. That's God's design. You will fulfill your function best, and you will be at peace. The evidence that your peace with God is multiplying is found in your knitting together as a people of God into a building, into a dwelling place where God says, I want to reside there. I want to put my name there. Remember the temple? I'm going to put my glory there. Does God want to put his glory on what you're doing within the church? Because he doesn't want to put his name or his glory on that one piece of block over there in the corner that's doing nothing. No. Knit together. For this is God's design. You're being built together. You want God to dwell in your midst? Then you must see his work of reconciliation as one to bring you into his very home, his very household. And then with the others who have been brought into that same household to be knit into a true family of God. Again, too many times we have concluded that this doesn't cost us much. At peace with God is something we receive from God and it shouldn't cost us much. We're going to see a difference tomorrow, next week. But I just want to remind you again where we started. Jesus made it very clear. That peace with God does not mean peace with the world. In fact, quite the opposite. In the illustration of the building, where all the pieces are fitted together where they belong, fulfilling their function for the safety and the protection of all, the world is represented by all the elements that would destroy those building materials. The wind will blow. Frost will come. Rains will beat. Sun will glare. The world will be at enmity. That is not the peace. Do not confuse the troubles of this age with where is my peace from God. For your peace with God sustains us. And God has warned us. And yes, even in Romans 5, it's one of the evidences that you are at peace with God, is that the world hates you. So are you being knitted together? Does the world hate you? Are you growing in your 
relationship with God, being reconciled to him. We're going to look at your responsibility next week in this equation. But God has made it all possible through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, through the Holy Spirit, through his church. He has given you all of this that you might have peace, a peace that isn't understood by the world. Can't get it because they cannot be righteous enough to appease God's wrath. So we have peace through Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for all that you've done to bring us peace through Jesus Christ, of his shed blood, of his life, of his presence right now in glory, interceding for us, mediating this agreement whereby we are no longer your enemies but your children. Oh, thank you, Father. And while we rejoice in what we have received from your hand, we know that there are many who are without hope, who desperately need to be at peace with you, who have just your wrath waiting them. And yet you died for them. You've extended the olive branch to them. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of that message to those we encounter. That as we've been reconciled to you and reconciled one to another, that we might have a ministry of reconciliation to the world. Though they hate us as we hated you, Lord, help us to love them as you've loved us. Lord God, we do thank you for this church and for churches like it around the world who are faithfully proclaiming your truth. And Lord, we pray that you might knit us together. We might never be found disgruntled, unthankful, and disillusioned. Those are all discontentment and selfishness driven. Lord, help us that we might minister one to another. Seek to fulfill the roles that you have placed upon us through your gifts to strengthen and build up one another. And so fulfill the law of God. Lord, we thank you for your help that you have provided, the means, the method, And we thank you for the offer of not just peace once, but of peace multiplied. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.